Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast show, The Experience. Let me try that again. Welcome, everybody, to the... <laughs> it's not like I haven't Keep done Keep it all, Chris. Times. Keep it all. It's good. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for April 21st, 2021. We are here today joined by at Loudmouth Julia. Um, to talk about what is going on with Netflix and the streaming wars and whatever came up in my mouth from vomiting a little bit about like what happened in their earnings uh, report. But um, I, Julie, why don't, why don't we start with you just introducing yourself, your background? I know you've been on the show before, but for folks who um, are coming back to you for the first time, or um, I guess that doesn't make sense. But anyways, you get the idea. Say hello. and Yeah. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Julia. I am a senior strategy analyst at Parrot Analytics, and I work with a number of clients across the OTT space, many of whom you subscribe to their platforms for. Um, before that, I worked at The Verge. Shout out, I see my buddy Phil Esposito uh, in, in listening. And um, I used to work at The Verge and then at Polygon and IGN, and I was covering streaming. And so I made the transition from reporting on it to um, effectively consulting their strategic roadmaps on it. So uh, Julia, what I wanted to start off with was that you're one of my favorite people in media. I read everything that you do and I'm making a liar out of that by realizing that I didn't know that you had transitioned (laughs) to, (laughs) to where you are now. So um, congratulations. Thank you. Um, Chris, can I can I tee it off? Please yeah, dive in. Uh, super simple, Julia. Uh, WTF Netflix? Um, I think maybe the, the the easiest way into this is uh, there's some famous quote that maybe a peacock guy or one of them one of them suits said a couple years ago that like uh, it's going to be an interesting five years for Netflix because all of the competition was coming for them and. I mean, is that is that essentially bottom line? What we're seeing now is just um, competition coming for Netflix, or is this uh, the streaming wars are going to be more difficult for everybody than we think? I want to start this off by saying there are two vastly different opinions on the situation, which is the street, which is Wall Street, and the investors who are saying. The streaming wars have come to an end because Netflix is now valued at less than 100 billion and they were valued at their peak, you know, a couple of years ago at just over 300 billion. And what has happened? That is true for investors in Netflix, where, oh my goodness, we're not going to make the same amount of money that we were going to make when Netflix had a monopolization on the OTT space. That is true. The other side of it, which is where reality exists, is the streaming wars have just started. This is the exact situation that Netflix knew it was going to find itself in, albeit much worse than they thought it was going to be, um, three or four years ago, where they said all of the clients that we work with were licensing to us that their best content are pulling it back, and we have to invest $17, 18 $19 billion in order to kind of create this type of content that we hope has the same level of um, demand. And, and demand is a, a term that we use at our, our company. Demand basically just means if there is inherent interest and love for this property, it results in additional uh, subscriber acquisition and subscriber retention, which is the revenue model that they're built on. So if they have less demand for their shows, and we see that demand is stagnant, and we see that they're losing their life, their catalogs, all of those licensing deals that they've made because those companies like Disney and Paramount and NBC Universal and um, uh, across the board are taking their content back, 
all that means is that Netflix is now in the position that we all thought they were going to be, which is this idea of like, hey, you have major competition in the entertainment space. The biggest issue with Netflix from a stock perspective is that Netflix was included in Fang, when that, which was Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, when the idea of what Netflix was never really made sense within that category. The idea that Netflix was in there as a media conglomerate, but also a tech company, like exactly. an entertainment company, it, it, it never made any sense. And now Netflix is reaching the valuation. It's the correction in valuation that is where it should have been many, many years ago. And so I think what we're seeing with Netflix right now is, again, this overcorrection in the space that was going to happen regardless of it. We're still seeing a pullback effect from, oh, sorry, excuse me, a pull forward effect from the um, the the pandemic, which we are still in, but I feel like we refer to it in the past tense now, uh, in the pandemic moment, which is 2020 and 2021. All those years did was that anyone who didn't have Netflix got Netflix and they decided with all the new uh, increased competition in the space, I don't know if I necessarily need this. I've got five or six other streaming services I can subscribe to. So Netflix has a tough road ahead of them in terms of competition, in terms of figuring out how to create long-term value out of the investments that they're making, how to not just think of the short-term 12 to 18 months, but how to think of a five-year plan, how to create a flywheel effect, all of these things that its competitors have spent 50 years uh, expertly crafting. But I also say this at the top of the hour, I don't bet against Netflix. I think the business revenue is still strong. The model is still strong. I think the executives are still strong. I think they're in a moment of R&D in the way that many of the NASDAQ top stocks are in a moment of R&D and they're figuring out what the next step is. But I do think it's going to be a rough year or two minimum for Netflix going forward. So would we have seen this, if not for COVID, maybe a year ago or two years ago? Like The earnings that we saw today, the sort of, the sort of situation that they're in, we would have seen this earlier except for COVID times pulling everything forward. Exactly. This is just competition. Like, it's so funny. We're so used to monopolization in the tech space without even realizing that we're used to monopolization in the tech space, that we're not used to how vast competition affects these companies. But what Netflix is encountering is many of these companies saying, hey, we're going to take a $200 million hit on our own revenue in order to pursue exclusivity, which we think will increase value perception for our subscribers, that they will eventually sign up for our service and uh, and, and stay with us month to month. And I'll give you a great example of that. Disney, in their first quarter of 2022, which is Q4 2021, the best way to think of Disney is there's always one quarter ahead. They came out and they said, we're going to take a $200 million loss on licensing and we realized uh, two weeks later they came out with a news announcement saying we're taking all of the marvel netflix shows we're taking all of the american crime story american horror story we're pulling that to disney plus and hulu as we try to figure out what we can do exclusivity wise and those are really in-demand shows those are shows that we see as potential acquisition drivers which means if you're not signed up for disney plus or the disney um, streaming service bundle which includes hulu that might get you to subscribe but also it might lead to extra retention and engagement. And engagement is a super interesting word within the OTT space because engagement on the one hand means, hey, people value what your service is because they're watching it over and over again. But as they, as many of these companies lean into an advertisement-supported uh, tier, engagement is the best way to increase the ad revenue they're getting. So if, if Disney says we have all these shows, people watch them over and over again, and that's great for our advertisers, they actually increase their revenue in terms of advertisement and they can increase their general average revenue per user, which we refer to as ARPU, which 
industry because they can say, well, we're loot where churn drops 2%. Like let's say Disney plus churn in the next six months is sitting at 3.5%. They can say, we're actually losing less subscribers. We're gaining additional subscribers. They're staying and they're watching and we can increase our revenue models in this way. And so I think Netflix would have encountered this regardless. The pandemic just had a very strong effect where they saw 2020 as a massive year for them, a groundbreaking, record-breaking year for them. And if we didn't have the pandemic, that would have happened over the course of three or four years. And now it's just happening kind of all at once. And so they have to come in and say, what's our next line of defense in this you know, colloquial streaming wars? Uh, you've sort of alluded to this obliquely, but um, to what degree is them having to rely primarily on their own catalog at this point? I mean, they've known this. They, they've always said we want to become HBO faster than HBO can become us. So, you know, going back to House of Cards, they're, they're, they're trying to create their own back catalog. But I, I'm, I'm curious, for people that analyze the industry, in a competitive sort of analysis of it, the fact that they don't have Marvel, they don't have Star Wars, they don't have, you know, the, the office and things like that anymore. And now they're basically left to their own devices. Is that having an effect, do you think, on, on their retention and churn and stuff like that? Yes. And there is a multi uh, part answer to this question. Let's start with the very basic. The very basic answer to this question is if we look at Disney and the Marvel equation, which I think is the most obvious equation that we could look at, but it really speaks to the value of it. Disney spent $4 billion in 2009 for Marvel Entertainment, which gave them access to about 10,000 characters. Since then, at the box office alone, this does not count for any ancillary revenue, which is just as important as the box office revenue and BOD revenue and streaming revenue. They've made about $30 billion plus in streaming revenue. So they've made $26 billion in profit on that initial acquisition. It, is, it will go down as one of the best acquisitions in media and entertainment history. At the same time, if we look at Netflix, and Netflix's attempt to do this, they spent about, I believe it was about $150 million. It might be a little bit less if I'm getting my numbers wrong, on Jupiter Ascending, which is based on Mark Millar's um, comic of the same name. Really big comic, huge fan base. The show was canceled within three weeks of its premiere, if I remember correctly. And that's a huge loss on Netflix's uh, uh, um, balance sheet. Netflix says we put this money into it. We expect it to have multiple seasons and possible flywheel effects. And flywheel, for anyone who's listening, is basically, if I put out this show, can I make it into a movie or a secondary show? Can I do merchandise? Can I do a video game? Can I do all these different things You know, at a theme park that leads to additional rev- revenue that comes in based on this franchise? So Netflix wants to be there. And this is always my question with the Netflix executives, because you'll have people like Ted Sarandos, who's the co-CEO, say things like, we want hits, we don't want franchises, when that is just unabashedly untrue. Like, we know they want franchises because they'll talk about trying to develop a flywheel effect in the same way that Disney, NBC Universal, and Paramount really have within their own franchises, and Warner Brothers, of course. Um, And they can't develop it. The big question with Netflix going forward is if you're losing revenue and therefore your average revenue per user drops because people are canceling and therefore you're bringing in less money you don't want to raise your debt necessarily you're hitting positive cash flow like you're figuring out all those factors but you have to spend 19 billion dollars a year on content the question is no longer what is the ceiling for content spend which is what it used to be a year and a half ago two years ago it was 
Well, everyone has spent eight billion, uh, you know, eight to fifteen billion dollars. The question is, how much value long term can you derive from those investments that they effectively start paying for themselves? If we think about what Marvel has become for Disney, Marvel is still a very big investment, of course, across the board. But Marvel also, to an extent, pays for itself in the ancillary revenue in terms of licensing those characters for video games, in terms of um, the park essentials that comes with it, in terms of clothing, everything that comes from it is a really great addition. Netflix does not necessarily have that. Netflix wants to have it. And so I think this is the big question for them going forward. It is how do you wisely spend your money while also realizing like, hey, we're trying to be a four quadrant service. And from anyone listening who's maybe interested but not in entertainment, four quadrant literally just means are you hitting above 25 and below 25? Are you hitting female and male? And are you hitting within all of those things? So HBO Max, for example, went from being from HBO, which would tends to be, uh, tends to skew, I should say, heavily male, heavily above 25. And they said, we need a, under 25 and we want female. HBO came out with a small show called Euphoria, became their biggest show ever, uh, mm-hmm. basically alongside Game of Thrones. And that was their way to say, hey, we have additional revenue coming in. We have this additional audience that we can tap into and now we'll build upon it. Netflix is trying to, Netflix is trying to be a four quadrant service. And in many ways they are, what they don't have that HBO has, what they don't have that Disney has, and what they don't have that Warner has and Paramount is this ability to say we have the longevity of these franchises that we can tap into and really build on top of to increase our revenue as we try to find new originals. And the last thing I'll say on this point is that we talk about the strength that everyone has and the weaknesses everyone has. Netflix's strength is still its originals. You know, it still has a 42% market share when it comes to demand. Like in terms of what people are interested in watching, it's still very much that. What Netflix has lost out on and what is a really hard thing to get a grasp of, and it's really difficult for a new company in a new era that has less than 15 years of streaming, you know, in their blood and original content, is the licensing, is sorry, is, is the back catalog that they can no longer license because all those companies are taking it back for their own exclusive offer. So it's a really tough position to be in. Yeah, I, you know, uh, for sure, everybody knew, even the people that were selling to them at the time, that uh, Netflix was making their business uh, on the backs of, of the back catalogs of these other companies. But at the same time, in recent years, I remember thinking that you know, them committing to spending, what is it, $20 billion a year to produce content was sort of like a bludgeon that they were using against these other companies because it would be so long before these other companies could show a return on that investment. And now I almost feel like it's it's kind of a millstone around them. But, um, okay, my, my specific question is, you said at the, at the top that you, you're still confident in them, you wouldn't bet against them, but let me let me run down a list of things that they have done just recently that they have said that they would never do. Um, I don't know. They, they, they said they would never pe- uh, crack down on password sharing. Uh, we knew they would do that inevitably, but that's one thing. Um, ad supported, <laughs> they swore up and down they would never have uh, ads or, or even a, a tier that included ads. Um, they're, uh, they're pulling back or they're claiming they're going to be a little bit uh, uh, more frugal in terms of uh, spending on content, or at least maybe smarter about what they spend or whatever. So that gets to that bludgeon thing. But then also, you know, the video game thing also seems to be like a Hail Mary sort of throw. So, so those are four things that I feel like that doesn't sound to me like a company 
that is confident. That sounds to me like a company that is, you know, trying to to grasp a, a, a lifeline. Well, I think if we use the example that Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings always used to say, which is we want to be HBO before HBO becomes us. HBO introduced ads via HBO Max before Netflix did. And I think that was a really big moment for them. I think they had a moment where HBO Max at this point under the regime of Jason Kyler, who recently left and is now Discovery and under the CEO of David Zaslav has taken over. Um, Jason Kyler introduced an advertisement supported here and said what I basically have been saying about Twitter, uh, about Netflix, excuse me, which is for people who don't want ads, nothing is going to change. Like you're going to have your ad, you're going to have the regular thing that you pay for and nothing will go on. But if we look at the cancellation rates and the churn rates for Netflix, there's this huge um, churn rate between people who are 50 plus and people between the ages of 18 and 24. 18 to 24 tends to be single uh, users. They tend to be on the basic plan and they're willing to pay for the cheapest because it's just them and they want to pay, you know, like eight bucks a month to get the basic needs that they they want. 50 plus, almost the same, except 50 plus tends to be low engagement, whereas 18 to 24 is high engagement. And so they're not really using the platform. So many times that you bring in a price hike, that's a really complicated thing for them to deal with because they're like, well, I don't really use this. I kind of want to maybe one or two shows that I'm interested in checking out, but a price hike, that makes things really difficult. And as supported here, all it does, and this is what HBO Max figured out too, was it's going to give people maybe three quarters of the same content, but they'll do it for a, a half the price and they'll be really happy with what they have because they don't mind that. And this is effectively, like, if we talk about this strategy, I mean, this is cable. Like, this is what cable figured out. It's like, <laughs> you don't mind paying 150 bucks a month because you don't mind as a subscriber paying top dollar for ESPN and CNN and um, FX or whatever it might be and HBO that you're really happy to have. And so you get the ABC and the CBS and the NBC and then also some other other channels for ad supported and you get all these things come in and it works out to be a really valuable bundle. We are effectively moving back towards that. I won't say we're moving back towards cable, although there is a strong argument to be made for that. But we're moving back towards that value proposition especially as consolidation becomes a key factor where you're looking at, well, Discovery and Warner Media can do this because they own three streaming services. You know, um, Disney can do this because they own three streaming services. So like that value proposition comes apart in a bundle. And so you're kind of like, oh, well, this makes sense. I get Hulu for free or I get ESPN Plus for free or I get CNN Plus, which we'll get to in a second, RIP for free. But like, you know, we'll do all these different things and, and, and it really works out. Netflix doesn't have any of that. Netflix does not have the content that like the, like the like the additional sources like oh well you're going to get sports you're going to get this you're going to get that so Netflix has to come out and say well what can we do to keep these people from canceling so that way we can increase and remember Netflix unlike many of these other companies does everything in USD which all that means is that across the board around the world Netflix pays for and values everything in U.S. dollar. A lot of other companies will say, well, we're going to value everything in the local currency and then we'll pay for it based on local currency. Netflix goes like, no, we're going to do it on U.S. dollar. So if you can, the region of the United States and Canada starts to fall, which is what has happened in the last quarter. Uh, that's a really bad effect for what the company can spend unless they take on more debt. So they're in this position where they're like, well, we need to make more money. We know that we have a huge potential loss of customers in password sharing. So we're going to crack down on that. We know well, that and, and, and is that's in conjunction, right? So if it, them, what you're saying is if they can add the, the ad tier 
at a lower cost point, I don't know, $5 a month, $7 a month or whatever. So then when they start to nudge people off of the password sharing, they have this thing to shovel them into that is maybe a little more palatable. Exactly. And it's the password sharing is not going to come for the United States and Canada first. It will come for it last. You, the password sharing will start in Latin America, where there is massive amounts of piracy, and uh, and uh, parts of EMEA, which is uh, Europe and the Middle East, and parts of APAC, which is the Asian Pacific region, where the plans are a little bit cheaper because they have to be. If we we could have a whole forty minute conversation on India, like the reason that Netflix is not doing well in India is specifically because of the the, of the price valuation and the price valuation of cable in that country. Um, so Netflix has to go, well, okay, if they're going to share passwords, how can we really try to bring them in as additional subscribers beyond this and, and really get them to subscribe and then, you know, not cancel? And so they'll start there. Eventually, password sharing will come back to the United States and Canada, especially if Netflix is not adding the amount of subscribers that they want to add. They'll say, well, you're sharing a password. We can get another, let's say, 10 bucks to ten to $15 out of you. The problem with this is that Netflix, and the core issue is that it always comes back to demand for content. If we look at what HBO Max and even Apple TV Plus do really well, it is those TV shows are constantly in conversation. Those movies are constantly in conversation. And so you're like, I'm going to sign up for it, and there's something every two, three weeks. I was listening to a Twitter Spaces with um, Harris Swisher and Casey Newton, and Casey said, you know, HBO Max over the course of the pandemic, thanks to the movies, but then also the TV shows, became my go-to streaming service. And that's what Netflix has not had in a year. Like, they have not had that. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features features help you say the right thing at the right time every time plus you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to constant contacts best in class 97 percent deliverability rate i use this and you should too tackle any challenge with constant contacts expert live
live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So th- that, that, that was going to be my next question, which is, I went down the list of the things that they said they would never do and they've done or at least announced they're going to do in the last year. And so basically the last one remaining is the whole we release everything all at once as opposed to doling it out over the course of weeks. And listen, man, if if what it is, and you know, I, there's, there's articles that I, I saw today that were talking about the churn and, and things like that. Like if not not just the churn, but like how easy it is to oh they've got a, a a great show I'll sign up again and then when that show ends I'll I'll cancel and then come back when there's another if you dole it out ten episodes over the course of ten weeks that's sort of to your benefit in a very big way do you think that the next domino to fall will be this whole release everything at once thing they're already doing it they're already trying it with. Uh, unscripted and reality series. They're already doing it with Stranger Things to an extent where they're splitting into two seasons, which was the Mad Men effect. And when we looked at AMC doing it with Mad Men, it felt like an Emmy's play with Netflix. It feels like a subscriber's play. Um, We're already seeing that happen. And they won't admit to that until they have concrete proof that it's really working. But of course, if the value, I mean, look at Disney Plus. So I I think going forward, I should say, the minimum that we will see happen is that they will do the three-episode release at once to get people interested, and then weekly. So you get maybe seven weeks out of it. But seven weeks translates into a quarter of subscribers, a quarter reduction in churn, a quarter of additional subs. That is what the street wants to see. That is enough for investors to continue giving you money to continue doing what you're doing. And so I think Netflix is already doing this. They will continue to do it. And I think what I will give Netflix credit for is that Netflix has never said we're going to grow our subscriber population by you know 3x 4x the margins i think this is a a thing for disney that's going to come back to bite them in the butt for lack of a better word i do think disney is promising three times what they should be promising and they're going to introduce a bunch of different uh, uh, ways to get subscribers in to try to meet those goals by 2024 2025 i think what netflix has always done extremely well is saying we have these subscribers we're number one we have the content spend we we're now cash cash flow positive we don't have much debt. We're trying to figure out what the next step is. The biggest, I, I say this all the time on Twitter, making a lot of TV is extremely simple. Making great TV is nearly impossible. There's a reason that Casey Bloys and his team at HBO are as protected as they are every time there's new acquisition. No one can make great TV like Casey Bloys and his team. And that is, what, again, why they're so protected. So I think for Netflix going forward, the question that comes out of every investment they make is what is the longevity prospect of this? What is our, if we're going to invest $100 million into this or if we're going to invest $10 million into this, what are we hoping to get out of it that will last longer than four weeks, five weeks, six weeks? No, do we want to get a season two or no? Do we think there's a way for us to combine this with our gaming strategy going forward, whatever it might be? That's going to become a question that's super important to them. And the irony is that is the question that has been important to legacy media operations for years. Like that is something they're hyper aware of. It's like, how do we take this brand that we're investing money into and really expand it, you know, five, six times what the investment is. Um, and so I, Netflix is hitting that point now. I think it was 
naive. No, I don't want to use the word naive. I think it was maybe a little bit arrogant to say we don't worry about competition because we're doing fine when the competition that's coming in is from some of the greatest legacy media and entertainment content creators in the world um, who are saying, like, we know what we do. We have the relationship to do what we do. But I've said this before and I'll say it again. I don't bet against Netflix. I didn't bet against Netflix before. I don't bet against Netflix now. They're in an R&D moment. I think they need three to four years to show what their changes will be because it takes three to four years for those changes to show. But it's a a tough moment. I will say everyone is always decrying this as the end of the streaming wars because Netflix is not doing well. Netflix not doing well is just proof that monopolization in a capitalistic moment does not work and that uh, uh, competition is great actually for the economy. And so I'm extremely excited to see what happens over the next three to four years. Wow. Uh, that was a lot. Um, I, I, there, there were so many threads that I want to pull on um, in what you're saying. Big one, I think, does come to this question, I suppose, related to what you use as, as kind of like legacy you know, media companies. But actually, I would think about them as kind of like... Um, I guess, well-known franchises. And, you know, you brought up Jupiter's legacy and I, I, I'm a big Millar world fan and I read Jupiter's legacy as a comic and I was excited to see it actually come to Netflix. And I was like, Oh, this is like so smart because they were actually putting out uh Millar world comics, which they had acquired Netflix had acquired and they were doing the shows. And that was something that was new and a little bit different. And what I was noticing for a period during the pandemic was that Netflix seemed to be partnering and exploring different things that mm, streaming companies hadn't really done before. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the comics was one thing. Um, I, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts about their gaming plays, which seems very early and not really in their wheelhouse. Um, however, lots of people are going there. And as, as Brian has been reporting on, um, you have platforms like Xbox and Sony looking into bringing advertising into games and with new technologies like Unreal Engine 5 and um, some of the deep fake stuff that's coming, you're going to be able to have these dynamic advertising driven environments, you know, where people can walk around like in Blade Runner and all the ads are personalized to you, you know, and so everyone's seeing a slightly different movie and that's very potentially interesting and lucrative. So I guess I want to bring back to, to the point about competing with these, I guess, platforms that have been around like slumbering giants for a long time. And now they're really getting into the streaming game. It used to be that Netflix could be just advanced from a technology and streaming, you know, capacity. And they're like, no, we're going to get rid of the DVDs and we're going to move full on to streaming and internet delivered content. And that's going to be the future. And they've built that. And now they've trained their competition in a way to use this new distribution platform very effectively. I mean, I've been really impressed by um, HBO Max and what they've done. You know, even though the the naming was confusing in the beginning, I think they've really kind of like hit their stride and they're developing great content um, and so forth. So if Netflix doesn't have the kind of, you know, Mickey Mouse style or Star Wars style or Marvel or DC franchises, what can they do? Um, I guess I, I'm, I'm fixated on the Jupiter's legacy part because th- there was an opportunity to create a franchise, you know, to rival Marvel or something along those, along those lines. And then it didn't work out. So is it just that it's really, really hard to build up those types of long-term storylines and, and that type of uh, investment in characters if you're, you know, focused on the next thing and, and moving so quickly through content? 
it's a beautiful question. And I think what the answer comes back to, and I, I was just talking about this on a podcast I host or co-host, I should say with um, Jason Snell. Yes. Um, please, please uh, name that. And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Podcast all downstream, but I, I was just talking about the Harry Potter conundrum that Warner media now Warner brothers discovery finds itself in. And this idea of like Warner, you know, Harry Potter's a $25 billion franchise that they can't make, it's $500 million off of anymore. Like they don't know how to monetize that adoration for Harry Potter. And there's a whole lot of things that go into it. Um, I won't get into it now, but I think to your point, Chris, about uh, the video game specific side of, of Netflix, the question I have for them is the question that I'm not the only person to raise. And many people have asked this question is if we assume that Apple, like let's just assume that Apple, Apple, Apple as a service, beyond hardware apple is a service their whole thing is like we make 80 percent of our revenue via ads for games and in-game monetization and that's where we make it all of our revenue to be within a competitive gaming sphere on mobile requires you to be on ios and android to be within that means be willing to give 30 percent of yet we be willing to give 15 30 percent of your revenue to the to apple and google who are going to take that you know, Netflix has kind of already gone around that by saying, like, well, we don't really have in-app purchases. Yeah. So people come here and they come to an app. But because they have a separate app that's not within Netflix, it means that nobody's really playing it. There's not really many downloads. And so the question then becomes, well, what is your – to become a, a, a very successful video game publisher is one of the most complicated and one of the most, uh, 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 like, notoriously difficult tasks to take on mm-hmm. within this industry. I, I worked at Polygon. I worked at The Verge worked with many, many incredibly smart gaming reporters who would talk to me about the economics of gaming publishing. It is extremely difficult. So for Netflix to say, like, well, we're going to get into the space, we're going to do mobile, and then we might be on um, platforms like PS4 and Xbox One, at One X or One S, it's like, well, that's extremely difficult. You're still getting 15 to 30% of your revenue away. If the idea is to create a flywheel effect and ancillary revenue for the main franchise, if the idea is, like, we're going to take Stranger Things, Umbrella Academy, Jupiter sending back in it like like that has been successful, whatever it might be, and we turn this into a flywheel effect, maybe, but I don't understand how that necessarily generates better awareness, attention, and adoration for them. And this is the thing that comes up quite a bit. I talk about this with a lot of friends in the space. There is this very macabre, and I say macabre because the idea of monetizing love feels gross in like a very like capitalistic way, but it's true. Is this idea of like how do you monetize adoration and love? And Marvel and DC have figured it out super well. It is like, hey, here, like we could do the everything from PJs to video games to theme park stuff, to like whatever it might be. We're involved in it. We're making money off it. Netflix doesn't have many franchises where it can do that. There's maybe a handful, and even then, Netflix does not own the rights to a lot of them. If you think about the fact that like Umbrella Academy and The Witcher have actual ownership beyond Netflix. Like, that does not necessarily mean that Netflix is going to profit off of these moments. Bridgerton and the Shonda Rhimes, like, Inventing Anna and the Shonda Rhimes uh, universe, maybe there's something there. But for all the 13 years that Netflix has been involved in original content, there hasn't been much produced in terms of longevity. And I think that's the conversation that the street is actually coming to without actually labeling it. Is this idea of, like, well, after 13 years, what can you show us that says you're going to start making, your money is going to start making money? Like, the investment that you put in is actually going to start generating ancillary revenue in a point that then goes back into content feeding that we can then say we're going to develop the next franchise that does not exist with netflix and that's a really 
a difficult thing to, I mean, Baja Bajaria, who is the head of content for Netflix, said this, like, all of these decisions in, come to, in terms of, like, what is a success, what is a success comes down to creative output and the ability to have a really creatively engaging show for all of the data that we have. And I love data. I sit with data all day for all the data we have. A lot of this stuff is like a creative feeling. You know, it is easy ploys again, at HBO saying like, I have a few, I have a feeling succession is going to be a big thing or euphoria has an audience and, and taking that bet. And I think with Netflix, the issue that that, that they have because they're so data reliant almost, is this idea of, well, we have to hit every four quadrant. We have to have a show for everyone. We have to be everyone for someone, everyone for everything for someone instead of something for everyone. Um, and that is going to come back to bite them. But, it, but when, we, when we think about what that means for the company's additional revenue going forward, it's much harder to generate a lot of adoration and love for short-term plays instead of long-term bets. And what Disney and Warner and NBC Uni and Paramount have done exceptionally well is play the long-term bet game and say, like, we think there's room here that we can derive additional revenue from these franchises that we're going to put a lot of money into over the course of the 10 years. And Netflix just seemingly isn't willing to do that right now. I mean, it, it does just seem that Netflix is so much more focused on hits and on, you know, getting something up, getting it out there and then shutting it down. Like if it doesn't get a certain amount of views in a certain amount of time. And that I think notoriously worked really well when there weren't a lot of competitors with good quality content that was easily streamable and accessible. Uh, but now that you actually have pretty decent choices from a number of different areas and, you know, it's easy enough to, to switch. It's easy enough to cancel your subscription. It's easy enough to bounce around. Um, I, I don't know that, as you said, sort of like churning through content actually will prevent churning through customers because now they actually have a place to go. Well, and two points to your, to the, your exact statement right there, Chris. Mm-hmm. One, if we take the general ideology, and this is, this is seemed to be true for the last you know decade in terms of how we think of OTT re- uh, revenue economics, is that big talked about shows and movies, specifically movies, are your acquisition drivers for subscribers. Mm-hmm. But it is sitcoms. I would actually throw musicals into this bucket. Mm-hmm. I would throw thrillers into this. And of course, procedurals mm-hmm. are your big retention drivers. Netflix does super well in the first part. Netflix does a really good job of having a thing every once, every, once, uh, every few weeks that people have to check out. Whether it's a TV show or a movie, Netflix has a thing that's like, I got to watch this thing on Netflix. What Netflix does not have, and this really sucks if we think about how cable used to operate, because this is cable figured this out extremely well, is that Netflix goes, well, we don't have to have something every month necessarily. So you're going to lose a lot of subscribers. If we look at the recent churn rates, which came from Antenna, which is a great company that does a lot of um, ex- excellent uh, analysis of kind of churn and acquisition rates for OTT services. We look at Netflix and the biggest churn rates on Netflix are between the 18 and 24 user group and the 50-plus user group. 18 to 24 tend to be single users who are extremely aware of how to use technology and are going every month to month with their wallet. They're kind of like, oh, I want to be on Disney Plus because Moon Knight's out. Once Moon Knight's done, I'm going to go to Hulu because I want to watch Pam and Tommy. Once Pam and Tommy's done, I'm going to go to Netflix because I want to watch Invent Scanner, like whatever it might be. They're hyper aware of how to control their finances with streaming. 50-plus is an interesting group because 50-plus is, again, uh, low engagement user, or sorry, sorry, rather lower engagement user. So if they see price hikes, if there's nothing they're necessarily interested in, and that was where the back catalog really comes in, they were get that getting from licensing from its partners. They're going to say, "Well, I'm going to cancel," especially if I can get NCIS, 
CSI, Law and Order, wherever on Hulu or Peacock or Paramount, whatever it might be, I'm going to go over there. That makes me happier. So what Netflix really has to aspire to is solving those two uh, user group crises. One is an issue that Cable figured out, which was, hey, if we make it really difficult to cancel, you're not going to cancel. Like it's it's just if you if it's your, if you're on hold with us for five hours and also it's a whole thing, you're locked in. You're going to pay for the full year. The other side is how do we get that back catalog for retention? How do we get the everyone's favorite show? When we think about how people sign up for OTT streaming services and stream, uh, which is streaming, it is not necessarily with what the with what uh, with the whole breadth of the catalog. It is do you have five ten of my favorite shows and movies that I will pay month after month after month for? I will say anecdotally. As long as Hulu has Law and Order SVU, I will pay for Hulu. Like, like I'm gonna watch that every <laughs> single night before I go to bed. Um, and the minute it moves to Peacock, like I might cancel Hulu to go to Peacock. And so I think this is the situation that Netflix is in. Is like, not only do they not have the back catalog of procedurals that people that keeps people engaged, not only do they not have the adoration of for shows that keeps people subscribed to Disney Plus or Paramount Plus or what or Apple TV Plus or whatever it might be, but Netflix is now also trying to figure out what well, we're spending. 10 times what our competitors are spending and we're still not reaching those same goals. So again, it's why I think like the three major takeaways that we have from Netflix's earnings specifically are how do you prove long-term value derived from the investment that you're making or for people in this chat who are working business, you know, what is that ROI percentage for per hit dependent on what you are necessarily um, looking to achieve over quarter per quarter basis and then year by year basis. That's one. Two is how do you deal with competition who is taking back their their most beloved series that they're going to have no matter what. If we look at we, I have a, there's a term that we use at our company called decay rate. A decay rate just basically means if you have, it, let's say you had no new content within the span of a quarter for your HBO Max. If you have friends, friends is actually going to keep people engaged longer than you think. So it's actually a really great purchase for you to have because the decay rate of that show is so low mm-hmm. that it actually mm-hmm. evens out the rest of your, your balance sheet. So two, it's like plutonium. Netflix, it just it never yeah loses value. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if you're Netflix, you don't have any of that because you don't have shows that last past, uh, that last past five seasons. You don't have any of those procedurals. What do you do? Invest in that point. And then three, you have to figure out, the ancillary revenue that is based entirely upon adoration of franchise. And Netflix does not have franchise beyond Stranger Things. Like, let's think about it. Netflix does not own The Witcher. Like, Netflix, like, that is a a CD Projekt Red and a book publishing uh, IP. Netflix does not necessarily own a lot of its other franchises where they're partnering with gaming publishers or partnering with other does, people. Does that, does that also mean, I'm, I'm thinking Witcher, like, does that also mean they don't know when the next season of Witcher will be available to them? So they do know because they own. They I mean, they, like they the, would know, but do they have control of it? They do. They do have control over the TV rights. But the idea of like, what is the ancillary revenue of the Witcher for a company like Disney? Like when Disney takes over a, a Marvel, they go, we own the TV, we own the film rights. That's great. We can also own, we also own the comics, so we can do a bunch of comic stuff. We can do a bunch of books. We can do a bunch of podcasts. We can do a bunch of clothing lines. Those rights get much more messier with Netflix when they're saying, "Hey, we're going to partner with the major gaming publishers like Ubisoft to real and and Sony to produce these works." Sony and Ubisoft are not going to give them the rights to the ancillary stuff. Like they're not going to be like, "Hey, you get uh, apparel, you get like additional video game stuff like that." 
are right. We're going to give you the right to develop TV shows because it actually helps us out. When The Witcher premiered, The Witcher was great for Netflix back when it premiered in 2019 or 2020, whatever year that was. Um, it was much better, arguably, for Ubisoft, uh, not Ubisoft, excuse me, for CD Projekt Red, who saw massive investment in in terms of people signing up to play The Witcher 3. Like, it, it, it created longevity for that franchise, for that game publisher. And so I think that's where Netflix is in this really tricky position, where Netflix does not necessarily have this ability to control the entire flywheel effect the way that Disney and Warner have structured their deals to do so. So as Netflix continues to compete against them, when they're already losing on the back catalog side, when they're already losing out on their demand for originals continues to diminish quarter after quarter, and they're trying to figure out, well, how do we compete with these guys? This is where legacy media is going to come in and say, we have the relationships. We know how to do this part of it. We're also getting into streaming and we're going to figure that part out. And I think it's much easier for the legacy media to figure out streaming than it is for streaming media to figure out legacy. Yeah, just on that, as, as you're as you're talking, I'm just sort of thinking back to like the the history and the legacy of Netflix now, and it just it seems like their whole model was about speed, you know. And I remember, you know, I worked at Uber, and Uber was all about like speed. It was about getting you from point A to point B super fast, you know, inexpensively, cheaply. Um, and a lot of that growth was. I think predicated on spending a lot of VC money, you know, money that sort of came cheap and was easy to burn. And in a way, if you think about sort of like a rocket metaphor or something, Netflix, you know, had a huge amount of thrust behind it. It was moving super fast and it seemed like it was, you know, getting into, um, what's it called when you're in, in space and you're sort of, you've hit the point where you're Escape floating. velocity. Uh, thank you. Yeah, exactly. But it seems like the difference is that the slow burn kind of more gradual, I don't know, slow content in in a sense that's more, I don't know, um, everywhere, like prolific actually is a much stronger term, long-term bet. And it just, it, it wasn't as, you know, sexy as kind of like the new guys coming out of Silicon Valley and disrupting Hollywood. You know, I just, I, I actually went on vacation in Disneyland and man, to try to imagine a Disneyland type experience run by Netflix actually sounds pretty horrible. Like it sounds like the fire festival, you know, like it's just, it's sort of like there and it's built and it's like fast and quick and, you know, you're moving on to the next thing the next day, but it doesn't have as you're, as you're saying, and I think your analysis is is super interesting to think about where this goes. It doesn't have sort of a deep bench of content and of collateral and of relationships and of, um, you know, like you said, pajamas that people are wearing because they love the stuff so much that they can't let, let it go. And whenever they, you know, want to get their Netflix or I'm sorry, their, their Marvel fix or their Disney fix, they know exactly where to go for that content. And as you're saying, you know, Netflix just doesn't have those type of iconic shows, you know, that are kind of of a different realm or a different order. I mean, like being in the DC or the Marvel universe, like you're, you're sort of living it. It is all, almost like an augmented reality before it gets to your eyeballs because you're living in those worlds and those narratives and those stories. And I just, I just don't think that I can observe a similar level of engagement that persists over years on the Netflix side of things. The biggest question I get from my clients across the board is how do we create, it's really interesting actually, because I did a, a study for a client, um, remain unnamed and they're basically like you know what is the future of theatricality in terms of what movies are released can you just give us like a little color on that client is it like uh like what do they do or i i can't give any i can't give any color a big client i'll just say the big in the entertainment phase i guess i mean like would they be competitive with netflix or creating content for netflix or something 
I would say competitive. Okay, and great. Yeah, competitive. And okay. they were asking, you know, what is the future of theatricality? And I, it, when I first delivered this kind of deliverable for them, I said, well, well, here's what Marvel does. And it was interesting because they immediately immediately emailed back and said, we don't care about Marvel. And in the sense that, like, of course we care. Like, of course we care about what Marvel is huh. doing. But they're such an outlier. Like, we can't, we're not going to compete with that. Huh. Like, like that's such a, like, well, okay, beyond that, what else can we do? And so it's really in um, trained my thinking of how to think about a lot of this stuff where when a lot of my clients come to me and they say, how do we develop a franchise? I actually remove like, okay, Marvel and DC. I'm like, sure, let's remove that. Like if we take that out, how do you create the next? And I always use this example because this show started as a procedural and became a 20 year run thing. I was like, how do you create the next CSI? How do you create the next Law and Order? Like how do you create the next, like, oh yeah, that's a franchise. Like it developed seven spinoffs. Like, you give Dick. I always say to to people, you give Dick Wolf a new city, he will create six franchises. <laughs> like, like it's fine. Like, you give him New Orleans, and he'll do something with it. Um, and so, this is the thing I have with Netflix a lot, where it is this idea of what is the value proposition that you are getting for your investment. You're spending all this money trying to create the next Star Wars. Star Wars exists. Like, if you create a a weird Star Wars feeling thing or a weird Marvel feeling thing people are going to react that really negatively because they marvel exists in star wars they don't need that i think what is a really great example of how to do content uh, investment well and how you can build franchise out of low investment um uh situations is the taiko waititi method which is taiko waititi was like what if we just subverted this idea of genre that people know really well what if we subverted the idea of vampire? What if we subverted the idea of pirate and subverted the idea of superhero? And we take this idea that people have, they know because it's the most mainstream thing in the world. And we provide a really holistic, vulnerable, sweet take on it for like one one hundredth of the price. And we deliver four times the profit. And that is what Taika Waititi, for anyone who's listening, has done considerably over and over and over again for three different networks. Like it's impressive. Like he's, done that with our flag means death he's done that with what we do in the shadows he's done it with thor like he's that's exactly his proposition is this idea of like what if we deconstruct the genre to its most humane level and then subvert it and there's this beautiful thing where with the franchises that everyone is trying to either recreate in their own way or to exploit in their own way what that really is is just really solid character development now i want to say this easier said than done i'm not saying like wow look how easy it is like everyone should have a takeaway like, 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 everyone should just figure that stuff out. But what Taika does, what Kevin Feige does at Marvel, what Walter Hamada does at, D, at uh, DC, and what uh, Dave Filoni does at uh, Star Wars, is having an architect who understands what the core attribution is to all of those franchises that really makes them succeed in different formats. Animation, anime, live action, live action comedy, live action drama, whatever it is, you know, film, television, they understand how to make a, 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 a series turn into a $10 billion franchise. And that is something that Netflix, I hope, desperately invests in. I think it's much easier, again, said than done. But they need someone who can say, hey, here's what you need to do with what you actually own. And here's how we 
expand it into something across and you know different revenue but are are they built for that i mean as you're as you're describing this it, it occurs to me that you know the the franchise model that you're kind of talking about actually there's kind of an analog with like restaurants and with good chefs you know that go to different places and maybe do some fusion or they have a style what you're talking about is how you can remix content in different ways once you really have mastered the ingredients of what goes into each thing and then you're just kind of like substituting you know i'm i'm going to not think of any spices right now but you know remixing a bunch of stuff that is familiar that's known but you know tastes like things that people want and i guess i just wonder if netflix is kind of like a ghost kitchen and so you're never going to build like that long-term brand value that when everyone comes back from the pandemic like they want to go and they want to stay in those places because those places are known to provide a certain quality of experience that you just want to like luxuriate in so so i guess like structurally is netflix set up to do what you're describing yeah, Chris, that's a really good point. I, I had someone ask me the other day, why doesn't Netflix let things run past five seasons, right? Mm-hmm. I remember... Well, they, they, they cancel things after four weeks at this yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, and I think for... I'm going to take a, a guess. I'm sorry for anyone who was born after, like, 2000. But for the majority of people <laughs> in this chat... I yeah, imagine, probably. We all, we all remember, like, five... Like, shows would last five, ten... Like, five to not ten, but five to, like, six seasons. Like, and I was saying to a person who asked me, who was born after 2000, and I asked, and they said, why don't they let them run that? And I said, well, Netflix doesn't have syndication rights. Like, why would Netflix run things to syndication points where they can then make double their revenue? Because they said, well, cool, we'll, let, we'll um, lend it out to TBS and lend it out to whoever, and they just run reruns of it. You know, the idea of, like, Seinfeld or Friends or How I Met Your Mother or, whatever, or even New Girl to explain. To or, or, or even Veronica's Closet or even... Right. Uh, yeah, what was like... It? Yeah. Like, like existing doesn't make sense from a revenue model. Like, it does not make sense to that company. So unless they can make it work within the first five to six weeks, like, it doesn't make sense. And I think, to your point, Chris, like, that is the issue that Netflix comes into, that legacy media has, where ABC, who's under Disney, of course, goes, like, Modern Family is syndicated on 190 networks, like, globally. Like, it doesn't matter. That's going to produce revenue for us no matter what. And then we can take that money. And I think this is the other issue that Netflix runs into, that the other legacy legacy media companies don't but legacy media companies are always going to have stuff on broadcast because that's still where a, a huge portion of their ad revenue is mm. a huge portion of their audiences so they put shows out there those shows those shows do decently they syndicate half of them and then they have all this additional revenue coming in they take that revenue ensure that broadcast and cable's fine but then say we're going to do what everything has been every everyone's been doing for the last five years and we're going to take all of our best content we're going to put it on streaming you know, this idea, like, I was talking to my aunt. I was, I was home in um, Toronto last week, and I was talking to my aunt. I said, what are you watching? And she goes, you know, it's uh, unfortunate. I have all these shows I want to watch, but I don't want to sign up for all these services. It's such a pain in, in, pain in the butt. And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, the issue is that all these companies, even the ones who have broadcast cable channels, are putting all their best content on streaming because that's where they think they need to be. And so I said, but they have the ability to do that with low risk of, of overhead interest because they're getting all this revenue from the linear side. And as long as the linear side is protected, they can put all that extra revenue coming in into streaming and they can build that mm-hmm. product up. Netflix does not have this. Netflix has licensed exactly two shows. One was BoJack Horseman at Comedy Central, and it was only like the last season. Um, and I, I, I can't remember the other one. It was also a comedy. And uh, or, or it might have been actually, excuse me, I've been Narcos. But Netflix basically took something and was like, hey, we're going to do this to get additional revenue. But otherwise, Netflix is entirely sub-based revenue. Like, it's entirely sub-based revenue. That's, that's the only thing they have. So if demand for those shows 
drops off as it has consistently mm. over the last eight quarters, then that means that Netflix is in a position where it's like, well, if our sub revenue is not generating the the uh, the revenue that we need to increase our investment in shows, we need to get an additional debt. We don't want to do that because then the street knocks it down, and then we're under a hundred billion dollars where they are now. Um, it's a really complicated position for them. They don't have the rev- the avenues, I should say, that the legacy media does, but. I do think we're seeing this very interesting moment where if you take your at uh, your y axis and your x axis, they're just hitting that crossover point where Netflix is kind of going like, well, we need some of what cable has, and broadcasting cable is going like, well, now we're in a position to really take on Netflix. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines, their family group chat, their crossword puzzles, just because they're available right now or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance, so literally no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed credible doctors and specialists. I have personally used ZocDoc to find a podiatrist when I needed one for the first time ever in my life. Go to ZocDoc.com tech meme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash tech meme. ZocDoc dot com slash tech meme. Um, Julia, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time, and I really want you to comment on, on CNN Plus before you go. But um, can I squeeze one thing in here real quick? Because... I've read a couple times today now references to TikTok, and I have heard now enough times from people inside Meta that the whole reason that Meta is going through its midlife crisis, well, there's tons of reasons, but is is because they they are they know the numbers better than anybody, and TikTok is basically eating everybody's lunch. I'm curious, uh, are you seeing that in your analysis and in your numbers is is tiktok 
something that is, is not just maybe uh, eating Netflix's lunch, but maybe uh, everybody's lunch in streaming right now? I would say I get where people are coming from in terms of attention for content. Like TikTok is an increasingly interesting competitor. It's not the same, though. If we were going to talk about this in the way that people really love to get on and say, like, well, TikTok is the reason Netflix, Netflix is failing, we would have seen that happen with YouTube. There are two vastly different things mm, competing mm. for vastly different audiences. And I will tell you that the people who are watching TikTok and YouTube are watching eight to nine hours of content a day. Like, they're splitting their time between um, the hot teen show on Netflix. Are they paying for YouTube? No. And they're they're not paying for YouTube. Like okay. I like they're they're watching it with ads. They're happy to watch it with ads. Speaking about TikTok, half of TikTok is ads at this point. I will say extremely well done. Like mm. very innocuous, but mm-hmm. the, you know those are ads. That audience is on their phone and on their laptop all day, every day. Like they're watching everything. <laughs> so I think well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Of so like, you're saying you know, there where, there is no substitution happening between increased usage of TikTok or Reels or or content like that. No, I mean, I think, like, again, if we think about like YouTube in its heyday, and like I spent many years covering YouTube as a reporter, YouTube in its heyday was like 2012 to 2015, which was also a great moment for Netflix coming into the space, but also for cable television still. And those numbers didn't necessarily drop. Like cable was dropping as Netflix came in, but that had less to do with YouTube as it had to do with like just the transition of how people were uh, consuming their content. And so I think this idea of well, TikTok exists. Well, of course it does. But I will say anecdotally, I watch TikTok in bed when I wake up in the morning. It's like the first thing I do. And then I'm at the end of the night, though, I'm watching the new Netflix, the new mm. Hulu, the new HBO Max thing. And I think, and that is what our, our research says a lot of people who use TikTok and OTT services do. Like there's more than enough hours a day. You know, when Reed Hastings used to say, we compete with sleep, sleep. like, yeah. yes, it was, it was arrogant. But it was this idea of like, if we think about the minutes in the hours of our days, we all watch TikTok between like, between like conference calls. Like it's like, I have mm-hmm. 10 minutes, I'm going to eat a sandwich and watch TikTok. But at <laughs> right. night when we're going to bed or when we're making dinner or when we're sitting on our couch with our loved ones or our friends or by ourselves, like it's that moment of like, I'm going to throw on the show that everyone's talking about. There's a reason that the nine o'clock spot is still so important. To HBO and all these other networks, like like there's a reason that that exists. So I think for all the pressure that Netflix, uh, excuse me, that TikTok puts on competitors to create more attention driving content, it's more so a competition between YouTube and Instagram, and it will be for many many years than it is with Netflix and hmm. HBO and Disney. Interesting. I mean, one one thing, and and you know, to get to the CNN Plus um, question, you know that that. YouTube does have, of course, with its creators is, you know, potentially in some ways relationships that viewers have to those creators. And of course that moves into like the Twitch world and to, um, even, you know, discord to some degree, but mostly on, on YouTube, you've got people that you subscribe to, you follow them and you're there for their content. Whereas again, Netflix really doesn't have that. You don't follow a, a certain actor or something and you see all of their stuff, you know, you kind of go for the content, for the shows, for the high production value. And so in terms of, again, thinking about the, the deep bench and analysis um youtube actually has that because you know maybe you have built up a relationship with a, a you know a youtube star or or creator over years and so that that would be one reason to keep going back there you know despite the ads and despite some you know other experience changes that again makes uh netflix a little more vulnerable in terms of being able to be substituted for okay so 
setting that aside, the CNN Plus, like, what the hell? Like, that seemed to be even worse than Quibi. And, like, I, I just, my brain is kind of exploding. And I'm, at the same time, looking backwards, it feels like that would have been really, really hard lift to get people to want to pay for something that, you know, frankly, is available for free on airport TVs. And you kind of just put it on the background and you're like, Why, wait, what? you want me to pay for, for this now? Help us break this down. Yeah. So I think, I think I tweeted earlier today, basically, that, you know, like CNN plus his quick closure was as much a result of conflicting, like, top down strategic views from two executive teams, uh, which was basically totally, totally, team at Warner yeah, Media yeah. and also the David Dazzle team at Discovery. Um, as much, though, I agree, I, like, I agree, I agree with myself. As much as it was good. A, <laughs> I agree um, with myself mystery. earlier today. I agree with myself into, I, but I think it was as much of a mystery into the value proposition of news with an, an OTT service and a mystery into how consumer appetite for news and new style content changes from linear to digital. And by that, all I mean is if we take the New York Times as an example, and I think it really is a perfect example of how the New York Times looked at its subscriber acquisitions, it is not news. It is like we have games, we have cooking, we have wire cutter, we have the athletic, and the athletic by means I'm trying to say sports betting. Like that is why they acquired that company. It is sports betting. It is local sports because local sports and help with sports betting. It is them saying the habit for this idea of news is that you're going to get some kind of monetary value or like cultural value out of your life that you might not necessarily associate with a new subscription. But when you subscribe for that, for these reasons, you're also going to get news. CNN Plus went the opposite route. And CNN Plus said, what if we said you're going to get really niche versions of TV shows that appeal to like media, Twitter, uh, and like very specific parts of the country. Mm. Um, and also you're going to pay six bucks for it. You're not going to get any actual live news, but you're going to get these different documentaries that would have been on HBO Max. The question of sorry, the issue of CNN Plus was a question and a wrongful question, but what the value perception of news is in people's lives. Now, I want to differentiate between these two because I think it's important. The inherent value of news, everyone on this call will understand. We like news; it helps support a democratic country. Like news is extremely important. The perceived value of news for what people actually want to pay for mm-hmm. is much lower than that inherent value because we live in an era of tweets, uh, of Twitter, of Apple push notifications, and of extremely good free news websites. Like mm-hmm. I think I used to work at The Verge, and The Verge covers everything from science and po- uh, politics and, and, uh, and culture and technology, of course, and it was free. It was ad-supported. Um, incredibly good reporters, like some of the best reporters in the business. You never had to pay for it. So why would you pay for the, the journal? Why would you pay for Bloomberg? Why would you pay for the New York Times? Like, the, like if you were someone who was coming up, you know, and you're, you're 21 years old right now, there's not a good reason necessarily to subscribe to news. There is, however, a great reason to subscribe to the New York Times if you are trying to make bets on who's going to, you know, win in the Celtic uh, um, a net like series. Like, there's a great reason to subscribe. If you're trying to cook for the person you're trying to impress, there's a great reason to subscribe if you're trying to find out which is the best, I don't know, uh, stove to purchase. Like all of those things create an, a perceived value for that consumer on top of the inherent value of news. And so I think that's where CNN Plus failed. It was just there was no perceived value that made it attractive. Now, I think just to give Jason Kyler credit, I'm a big fan of Jason Kyler. I know Brian knows this. Huge. I, I really love what he did with HBO Max in his time at Warner Media. 
he always envisioned CNN Plus as a tile. So if anyone who is listening to this is outside of the United States and you have Disney Plus, the tile is basically what Star is. It is this idea of like you click on a tile and there's this whole new world of content that is open to you because they brought it in. CNN Plus was supposed to exist as that. You click on the CNN Plus tile and there's this whole new world of CNN. And I think that made much more sense than trying to do it as a standalone streaming subscription service. I do think you get two very different executives, one who's on his way out, one who's on his way in, both trying to kind of compete with each other. And that creates this beautiful moment of like chaos. I mean, was there any world in which, I mean, given those dynamics, those politics that CNN plus had any shot whatsoever? No, there was never a world in which CNN plus is a standalone app makes sense Mm -hmm. ever. (laughs) Unless you were able to actually, because I mean, here's the thing. This is the, the joke with CNN Plus, and I don't mean that the service is a joke, I mean mm-hmm. like the irony with CNN Plus, and the irony with like an ESPN Plus, is that it's actually CNN minus the ESPN Plus. ESPN <laughs> minus, right. right? Like you don't actually get the service and then some. You right. get some parts of the service. And so I think the, the biggest issue that... Yeah, the Venn diagram is, doesn't actually work out in your favor. Right, and if we think about like Peacock and Paramount Plus, yep. which offer live news, they didn't have to compete with this idea of this insanely popular and world-renowned cable brand like cnbc like cnbc was never going to be offered on peacock nbc was going to offer a version of news that you were going to get on peacock but i think cnbc is my favorite example to bring up in part because david Zaslav, is the ceo of discovery helped create it why is cnbc so important if we think about who that consumer audience is one it is people who are retail investors who want to know what they're going to spend their money on it is analysts and journalists who want to know what the next move is, and it is other executives who want to know what other executives are saying. The, the perceived value and the inherent value are one-to-one, and that is exactly where you want to be. CNN, it's, like, it's like visual Twitter. Exactly. CNN to CNN Plus is not that. CNN is, I want to know what's happening in Ukraine the moment it's happening. I want to know if, you know, like, knock on wood, a plane goes down. I want to know exactly what's happening. I'm going to turn to CNN. You're not going to get that on CNN Plus. What you're going to get on CNN Plus is like a very good um, Brian Stelter show, which I really adored. And that was great for like media nerds. You're going to get a really great um, uh, Murdoch documentary series, which I loved because I love the Murdoch. Uh, well, I don't love the Murdoch. I love the story of the Murdoch, I should say. But like you're going to get that, and that's really exciting. But the story of the Murdoch should exist on HBO Max when they have Succession, when they have three series airing simultaneously that are basically about the Murdochs. Like that should be where you put your content. So this idea that it was ever going to exist as a standalone never made sense, but it was never designed to. And I think that's what people are forgetting. It was never designed to be a standalone. You are in this moment of unfortunate turnover where one team is saying, we, this was what we had a plan for HBO Max. One team is coming in and saying, we have this really great idea for a unified app. And then you get a lot of people who will unfortunately lose jobs in the crosshairs where it's like they're just trying to do the best that they can do. Right. So, so Occam's razor is this was, this was politics where some team or some executive have had enough juice to be like, we're going to try this experiment. Everyone else behind the scenes was like, this isn't going to work. And as soon as it doesn't work, they've got enough rope to pull the plug, basically. Exactly. They, the, there was no question that CNN Plus was going to be uh, shuttered and then thrown into basically a combination of HBO Max, which would have been the documentaries docu series. So that would have been like Anthony Bourdain. And by the way, that back catalog and that content 
opinionated news content is still the most sought after mm-hmm. content on cable TV. Mm-hmm. Docu-series like Anthony Bourdain is still the most sought after docu-series. That content is extremely valuable to HBO Max. Like that is beyond valuable to them, especially at the low cost that it takes to invest into it. The other content goes ad supported to CNN. They want to do a, a, some form of a live news show. They want to do some form of a news recap. That goes to the CNN app, which is an app that needs some redoing, but uh, like, like it exists over there and it's fine. Um, the, but the idea, yeah, it was never, ever, ever going to be a successful standalone app because the perception of what the value of news is to someone, you know, I saw, I saw a news story. I'll just say this. I saw a news story that said David Zaslav, and I really give him credit for this. Cause I think it's what I, I think it's what the country needs. Wants to go back to like straight up news journalism on CNN. And I give him credit. Cause I think it's what the, the industry needs. If you give up that nine o'clock slot, which used to be Chris Cuomo's, he was fired from CNN. They've lost 70% of their core demographic in that space since he's lost. If you give it up and you go back to global news, you're going to give more people to MSNBC and, and Fox, whichever way you want to go. Both of them are going to take up more people because what people are tuning into at 9 p.m. on linear network is they want an opinion. They is they want entertainment is they want a version of the thing that they're turning into. They have conflated the team at CNN, that idea of what that audience is with an audience who wants news. Those are two completely different audiences and you can do two completely different things with it. But I think there's this idea of like a misdirection in what CNN plus or what a CNN digital output, which is effectively protecting the longevity of CNN's future is compared to what the seven o'clock to 11 o'clock CNN primetime uh, lineup is. And I think that's going to be where they really struggle. And I, I'm, I'm interested to see what Chris Light does now that he's overseeing it. Juliet, they're going to sell CNN now, right? Full stop. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to make a bid, obviously, with mm. all my money. <laughs> um, I've, I've heard uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's much of a secret that that's a possibility at this point. Um, okay, I want to make a, a quick sort of Tesla analogy, <laughs> if, if, you, if you can believe it. Um, Are you going to talk Elon? I feel like... No, 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 Chris, no. We, I made a vow on the <laughs> yeah, show today. It's that, forgotten today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. The, no here's until the we Tesla have analogy. some actual news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no funding secured, Here. whatever, it's fine. Okay, no. <laughs> li- hear, hear me out, because this makes sense. And I've heard this several times today. It, uh, it's Netflix to Tesla, which is, what has happened to Netflix? They were somebody that completely transformed an industry, had a decade's head start on everybody else, Everybody else figured out, caught up, and now is competitive. And multiple people today have made the analogy to Tesla, which is the same thing that, you know, again, like I've said a million times before, you know, in the early 2000s when I lived in Detroit and, and all the Detroit people, all the car people were like, Tesla's a joke. And now everybody's trying to be Tesla, just like every, you know, everyone's trying to be Netflix. Now, Tesla had great earnings, but could the day come? where Tesla is in a Netflix situation, which is everybody is doing what Tesla does. And it's not that they have the back catalogs, but they do have residual brand value. They do have, I don't know, um, bigger factories, bigger sales channels, things like that. Um, that's it. I, 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 I'm, no one has to comment on that, but I, I'm pointing that out. Um, but Chris, no, I, you, I, yeah, I, actually, I actually do have just one small comment on it. And one, I don't want this to come across. And I'm saying this in part because I do like Tesla and in part, they don't want Elon fanboys to attack me. Um, 
We, we, we love Elon on this show. All we of us do. do. We do love Elon. And <laughs> it's like I, talking about the mafia in New York City. We love Elon. Exactly. I, I, I genuinely appreciate Elon. Um, you know, I don't think he should run Twitter, but to Chris, we'll talk about that for a later conversation. Um, I, here's the thing. I love nothing more I love than a um, competitive marketplace. And so I, I kind of hope, and, I, and here's where I'll say this part. Like, I don't want Tesla to lose its value. I'm not saying like, I hope Tesla shareholders lose out on a bunch of money, any of that. I am saying, I hope that there becomes a moment in the um, electronic vehicle space where there is more competition, just because I think it creates better product. I think competition is what leads to better product and better economics and better value for customers. And I think right now, Tesla, to your point exactly, Brian, Tesla has this monopoly in the way that Netflix had a monopoly in 2014, 2015. And I would love to see more competition coming to the space. I think it's already happening. We saw, I can't remember which, it was a Japanese car. Maker. I don't think it, it might've been Honda. It might've been Hyundai. I can't remember which one that they're going to invest like $2 billion into the electronic car vehicle space. Like that's what I would love to see more because I do think it is better for consumers in the long run, even if it's worse for shareholders in the short term. And I think that's the point about Netflix. That I want to come back to, which is, you're going to see people listening to this, a lot of doom and gloom about Netflix. And a lot of that comes from people who are investing in Netflix. Where Netflix was at in 2019, 2018, 2020, when they were a part of Fang, which never made any sense. Uh, like, that is not going to happen again. But if we think about the fact that Disney is trading at, like, 140, if we think about the fact that Paramount is trading at, like, just I think it was, like, 120 last I checked. It might have gone up or down. Like, that is where Netflix should be. As much as Netflix is a technology company with an amazing algorithm, it is also a content company and a media company, and that is where media and content companies are trading at. Like, don't take doom and gloom in the stock as a sense that Netflix's business model is failing. And I hope that when we think about Tesla, if Tesla were to come down a little bit in stock because there's extra competition, I would not take that as a negative sign that the space is going down or that the space is worse off. It just means that the people who are hoping to make $1,100 off Tesla stock are no longer making that and they're selling. Um, but it actually is great if we have more competition. Like more competition leads to better product and leads to happier consumers and better products for consumers. And so that's kind of where I sit. You know, just building on that, um, it, it does occur to me that one of the, the questions that actually we need to be, I, I guess, contemplating is what is Tesla? What is Netflix? Because I think the the way that I would respond to Brian's, you know, question and thought is if you are trying to turn a Tesla orange into a Ford Apple, and, and what I mean by that is like apples to apples or oranges to oranges, like Tesla, I mean, as, as Elon talked about on the earnings call today mm-hmm. is so much more than a car maker. In fact, that's like yeah. one of the things that is incidentally part of their business model. And that is the thing that customers obviously have a connection to, but you know, they are getting into the insurance business, you know, which has amazing margins, especially if you're able to track everything that your drivers are doing and you know exactly what rate to give them. You know, they're getting into the, um, you know, home electrification space and solar and to energy. I mean, they're an amazing energy company. They have distribution for their superchargers. You know, the thing he talked about today is uh, apparently like robots are going to be a big part of Tesla's future. Um, And they're also, I guess, investing in uh, autonomous taxis, and that's going to be enormously transformational. I mean, you know, these are all Elon, like Elon's I know. always going to say a lot of things, but it, I love Elon. I love. It, remember, I love him. 
I'm sure the high is still left over from yesterday, but my point is more about what is Netflix going forward. We're about to enter into a world where augmented reality and, you know, glasses are fixated on people's faces. Um, presumably, you know, if the experience is right, we know that Facebook or meta has bet the farm there. We know that snap talked a lot about augmented reality experiences. So, Netflix strikes me as a company that was bringing the internet to kind of two-dimensional moving pictures. And they, they don't seem to have a lot of immersive, you know, content experiences yet that suggest that in the next 10 to 15 years, I'm going to be subscribing to Netflix in my MetaQuest or whatever, you know, Apple goggles might be. So given, you know, we're in this interesting moment post pandemic, you know, where maybe there's some correction going on in the market. Where do you think Netflix goes if they don't build these long-term kind of metaversian environments that, that have these long running narratives that people can move in and out of in these immersive spaces or, or, I mean, I suppose these new mediums don't have to replace the current mediums, but it does give me, uh, I guess some, you know, some pause or question about how much Netflix and the Netflix model will be aligned with where content seems to want to go. I think that's the question. I think you hit Mm. the nail on the head. That Mm. is exactly it. It is. If Netflix does not get into a place where it is creating the type of longevity within its own franchises and content that it can then rest on or continue to build on, it's in a really, it's in a, it's in a big predicament. I will say you know, I think that one of the things I think about all the time is in 2003, Michael Eisner, who was the then CEO of Disney, passed on Marvel because he said it's too mm-hmm. out yep. of the box for us, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not doesn't make sense for Disney brand. You fast forward to 2011 or 2009, excuse me, 2009, and um, Kevin Mayer, who was the chief strategy officer of Disney. With with Bob Iger, who is obviously the most, arguably the most famous uh, CEO of Disney, said, I think we can make Marvel work for us. We're going to bring this kid, Kevin Feige, in, and he's going to oversee it all. And that's a $30 billion profit on a $4 billion investment so far at the box office alone. Like, that's just box office. Um, I think that's where Netflix is at. Netflix has to figure out what is the strong bet that we make that we think will derive long-term valuation out of the investment that we make and not just in terms of uh content like if we think about what marvel has done for net uh, for excuse me for disney beyond content it is uh, beyond tv and film content it is the idea that they are licensing those characters to Fortnite, and Fortnite played, played a huge part for them. It is the idea yeah, that with the totally. Star Wars uh, Star Wars acquisition, they're going to EA and they're going to um, I forget the other video game publisher, but they're going to not three forty three, it's the other one, um, and they're the Titanfall developers, and they're going to them and they're saying like, we're going to give you guys these characters, and you can use them. You're going to build our Star Wars universe on the gaming side. We don't want to do that. We we don't think we can do that, but we're going to license it out to you. And Netflix doesn't have that. And again, like. We it's so e- it's easy to sit here and say like oh I think I tweeted this today of the Netflix earnings and it's so easy to say sit here and say do better content or make franchises like it's extremely difficult to do. There was a beautiful moment at Disney where Kevin Mayer, Bob Iger, Kevin Feige, um, Dave Filoni, Kathleen Kennedy, a bunch of people existed at the same time and they all had the same rough ideas and it worked out super well for them. Ellen. Alan Bergman, um, Alan Horn, like it, it just worked out. Like, like they figured it out. 
that does not happen that often. It is rare that that happens. Um, and so, like, Netflix is in a point where Netflix is trying to figure out who's the best team to oversee this. Who is the best team that we bring on to develop this? Do we buy production companies? Do we just do we go exclusive on the production companies that we acquire? Do we do more showrunners uh, exclusivity? I think that's the wrong move. I don't think they should do more showrunner exclusivity. But it's this position where they have to really start saying, what do we invest in that is going to be high ROI? Beyond unscripted and reality, because we know that unscripted docuseries and reality is going to be high ROI because the investment is so low. But on the sci-fi, action, adventure, drama side, where is the investment that you're going to create, uh, that you're going to put in order to create a franchise? And on the comedy side, where is the investment that you're going to give them seven to ten seasons to produce an actual franchise and a longevity franchise that people will come back to and say, this is my favorite show. I want to watch this over and over again. Netflix does not have a friend, Seinfeld, uh, How I Met Your Mother, 30 Rock, or New Girl. Like They do not have any of those types of series. They don't have a Family Matters. They don't have any of those types of shows. And they need one. They need one show to say, because the, 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 the correlation between why people sign up for cable and why people sign up for an OTT service is so psychologically different. People sign up for cable because they want access to a bunch of different things. 99% of the time, it's sports and news, and then they happen to have a bunch of content on there as well. Why people sign up for an OTT service and why they keep signed up is because they have access to their favorite show or franchise, and that's it. People will pay month after month if they have access to one show. It's one show that makes or breaks many times. And Netflix does not have the one show. Like They lost the one show. They have Seinfeld, which is great. But they lost Friends, they lost The Office, they lost a bunch of other shows, and they don't have one that's like, well, I, I, need, to, I need to have this because I watch it every single night. Where Paramount and Peacock will end up thriving in the next two to four years, this is my prediction, is that they will have nine times of the shows that, of, of that exact caliber. Where it's like, I want Criminal Minds, I want Law & Order, I want CSI, I want whatever it might be. They have it. I want Friends. Like They, they will have those shows. That's where it will uh, exist. And so I think for Netflix, what is the move going forward? It is thinking longevity and not just short-term play. And that is disappointing Wall Street. And I, I say this because what the street thinks and what a solid business plan are, are often two different things. Um, and I hope that Netflix leans into the solid business plan as opposed to keeping Wall Street happy. Mm, got it. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants. The right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at cutsclothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. Cutsclothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. 
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thank you for that. Um, Brian has uh, a, a slightly different topic from a very different medium uh, that yeah, he'd like is, to bring up. This is, this is the end, but I, I just wanted to bring up uh, two books because I occasionally do that on the show. But the first one, um, I'm glad Julie is here because... Julie, you might already have gotten through it, but um, it's uh, Binge Times Inside Hollywood's Furious Billion Dollar Battle to Take Down Netflix. I think it came out on Tuesday, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm already in, I think, four chapters in. Um, Is that Don's book? Um, it's uh, Don, whatever, yeah. however you pronounce her last name, and Date Hayes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, it's telling telling the story of the last decade and, and getting to... Um, the streaming wars. So, um, so far so good. I highly recommend that. Um, and then the other one germane to our interests, uh, it came out in February. It's called the founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. And I'm recommending this one, not only because, uh, Jimmy Sonny's a friend. Um, he, he did a book about, um, uh, Claude Shannon and you know the whole mm-hmm. idea of information science. But when I wrote my book, one of the big missing pieces was the PayPal story because there have been books on PayPal, but they were all sorted by insiders who had their own access to grind. So it's not about the PayPal mafia. It's literally because of the PayPal mafia. Um, it, it goes back and tells the story of PayPal itself, which is one of the most insane company stories ever i mean people don't know the fact that friggin um peter Thiel led a boardroom coup to kick out elon musk as ceo right (laughs) um so this goes way back the whole mafia story like as someone who listens to the all-in podcast Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's just truly like it's like it comes up all (laughs) well so i mean all all of the people in the mafia show up in this book everybody participated Musk, Teal, everybody, you know, um, Reed Hoffman. Uh, so, uh, give, I give me the book name it. again. It's called "The Founders: The Story of PayPal and the Entrepreneurs Who Shaped Silicon Valley" by Jimmy Sonny. Um, okay. And I'm two chapters into that. I will share um, the link. Yes, and, and I'll try to put them in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, we're going to wrap, Julia. I, I, I'm so thankful that you gave us so much of your time. Yes, um, I, I so. want, I want you to to plug whatever you want, but I also want to put a plug in there for, you know, Julia is an insanely good analyst in this stuff. So mm-hmm, anybody clearly. listening that could, could use analysis in the space, uh, get in touch with Julia and her company, but Julia, tell us anything you want to tell us. I would actually just love to plug a few analysts and very smart people. I follow, um, I awesome. follow, um, Andrew Agave, who used to be at Viacom and now he's on his own. Matthew Ball, who many people who listen to yep, this would know of what yes, I love, yes, Matt, yes. good friend of mine. Um, Casey Moore, who's one of the most underappreciated Netflix analysts in the space, um, entertainment strategy guy is what his name is on net, on Twitter. Um, he's one of the smartest people in the world. Um, Lucas Shaw, great journalist who I listen to and read all the time. 
I've We've joked with who, I, who mm-hmm. I read all the time. Um, I only learn from the people that I read, and, and those are just some of the names. And um, I will say this because I'm a woman in the space, and I want more women in the space. And then the men I all listed are incredibly smart, but they're all men. Mm-hmm. Who I love dearly, but they're all men. <laughs> and um, I, I just, um, if anyone is, uh, is uh, who identifies as a woman or whatever is interested in learning more about the space, please like DM me. We need more women in the space and especially more women of color. And yeah, I, I would just say Twitter, um, despite Elon making a tender bid for it, uh, <laughs> is, is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful space in that I have gotten many of my career opportunities through it. I've met many great people like Chris and Brian through it and many of the people I just listed. So um, I would love to just connect more. Please feel free to reach out. My DMs are open. And um, yeah, that's it. I'm just so grateful to be asked to be on it, guys. Thank you so much. You're 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 just towing up to the line of breaking our promise not to talk about it. <laughs> um, listen, I, I again, I am not blowing smoke. I like I say on the show, lots of people are the best, but Julia literally is the best in this space. And um, so I, 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 I'm not blowing smoke at all. I can't say it highly enough. Follow Julia, whatever she does, whatever she breaks. What's your, what's the podcast again? downstream podcast with uh, jason snell who apple fans oh, will nice. know. He re- yeah yep. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah jason gives me good tech advice and i say my mic won't work and he say have you updated and i said i refuse to do that <laughs> devices and it always goes well um but he's great so we yeah we do that podcast it airs every two weeks it's, it's a fun fun time all right chris bring bring us home awesome Well, once again, thank you everybody for your attention today. Julia, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and so much of your knowledge and wisdom. Um, I, I learned a lot, um, and had a great time having this conversation. So thanks for showing up and we will probably be here back again next week on Thursday. Thanks everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.